0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's events. My left eye sees pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap wind and solar to steam drill, baby, drill, predefined, misaligned, polarized division, shuddered mind, worse than blind, 2020 vision. How are you doing, Dave? Doing well. How about yourself, Matt? Easter here wasn't a beautiful day, but the, the week leading up to it was, so, so we enjoyed the that little hint of spring that is so nice this this time
1: of year. We were in Florida at Lauderdale by the Sea, so a great Sunday. Cooked potatoes au gratin for the first time. They actually came out pretty well, and very nice. Watched Jordan Spieth win, which is always you know fun, and then uh, the Celtics beat the Nets. So a good good Easter Sunday, you know, all together, and I'm back at it with. Uh, I think we have a little over a month left before our commencement at the end of May. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: we have a little shorter timeline than that. We've only got one more week of class after this week, and then final week and commencement there. So it'll be fun. It's you know nice to be looking forward to a, a commencement that'll be normal. Uh, last year was five separate ceremonies. This year it's one ceremony, and we'll have the awards program the night before, and get to have receptions with parents and graduates and all, all the kind of things that we were so used to doing in previous years so it's it's crazy to think that it's been three years since we could do all that but it, it's nice to be able to get back to that and then and yesterday the first day on the train in the uh, post mask mandate world so it was really interesting to see how that changed the dynamic you know the the one conductor that takes my ticket on the the terrain that I normally take, at least this year, finally get see his full face. I don't know, that's what this guy looks like. <laughs> it's yeah. just sort of sense of, okay, you know, the community is getting back together. There were there was it was a mix, people wearing masks and not, but um, it was definitely the majority who were not. So uh, not a super crowded car. So you know, so people are weighing those things, but but it was interesting to see where even in New York metro area where the pulse of people are on that issue.
1: Yeah. I mean, in Florida, as you know, it's, well, it's Ron DeSantis land. So uh, yeah. really kind of no one out and about kind of wearing, you know, anything like that, maybe a few people, one out of every, you know, hundred to 150 people, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's, I think it's good and, and uh, we'll move forward and have a, have a regular uh, summer. Yeah. It'd be great. So on to Aristotle uh, book seven chapters four through seven. So we have five more. After this episode, five more episodes as we make our way through the remainder of Book 7 and into Book 8, Chapters 1 through 3 of Book 7 we covered last week, and they really hovered around this conclusion that, uh, according to Aristotle, the best life, he writes, both for individuals and states, is the life of virtue, Uh, when virtue has external goods enough for the performance of good actions. So, virtue produces external goods. Those external goods kind of enable, uh, they don't uh, prepare the way per se, but they enable the performance of good actions. Uh, they ought to be highlighted, but they ought not to make, be made central uh, to the best way of life. And I think he kind of builds upon that theme in a, in a nice way here and getting to some of the particulars of what states look like by emphasizing that there's a material element to a state being able to function well, uh, being able to be virtuous, and being able to encourage virtue among its citizens, uh, but it's not all that matters. So, in chapters four through seven, we take up different elements of this discussion uh, in terms of the material conditions of the virtuous uh, state. He asks, what should be the conditions of the ideal or perfect state? For the perfect state cannot exist without a due supply of the means of life. We must presuppose that material is necessary, but we, not, we must not presuppose anything that's impossible. And here I think there's a little bit of a hit uh, or a critique of Plato, and Plato's Republic, and Socrates' creation of a city in speech that right, is meant to be impossible. It's, it's meant to be ironic. right? We're not going to create this mythical uh, city with noble lies Uh, Aristotle wants to to analyze and assess and propose from something that really could happen. So he's going to build, as he does always, from the ground up. When he asks the question, you know, what material basis produces the the best flourishing for a city? He goes to the common sense question of, well, how many citizens should you have? What, What should your population be? What should the number of your population be? And he says that the the number of your population is less important than its character in terms of its power, its ability to work. So numbers per se, quantity per se, must be qualified. The, The amount of people that you have in a city must be judged by what they bring to the table by what they can do. So population in and of itself, the greater the number in and of itself, the greater the multitude does not make for the more flourishing city. What do you make of this first entry into the discussion of the material conditions for good life?
0: Well, it seems like it fits kind of the general framework of argument that we often get from Aristotle, where we think about extremes on both ends that don't work obviously if you have too few people then you're always in danger of being overrun by your neighbors you know you, you can't secure yourself in a world of of clashing interests and clashing countries but if you think about just quantity as as the key to flourishing we think about our own historical experience of the last 100 or so years and the largest countries being china and, and india and the united states you know after that and and yet United States has had a population that's been you know, a third or a quarter of those two nations for this, this period during which the United States has been clearly more powerful than either of them. Now, of course, China's emerging as, as a great power and a rival perhaps of the United States in the years to come, but, but clearly it's not just
1: about a quantity. One of the great things about this conversation is that there certainly is an application to the discussion of the size of a community, the size of a state, but this discussion also applies to any organization. You, you teach at a college, um, I lead a school in Texas, and the question always arises, is it is it better to be bigger? Is it better to have more students, more families at Geneva or at the King's College? And some of the principles here that Aristotle applies to the discussion could be applied uh, to, to a country, but could also be applied to an organization. Because what he's going to say here, right, is that It's the quality of the citizenry that matters, and that quality is defined by the standard of lawfulness that produces order, that produces um, a unified whole. If you have a great multitude, he writes, that cannot be orderly, then you haven't created something uh, that is good. You haven't created something that is beautiful. So the, the question is, what size that can still live out a constitutional whole, a, a, a body of people who are drawn together by something in common that work well together. So power is built upon order. Order comes from a unity that is constitutional in nature. Agree?
0: Right. And so you need people that have a common sense of mission, if you want to put it in the language of an organization, people that are, are gathered around a, a, an end, a goal, a purpose and so having more people come in who don't share that doesn't just not add value but detracts right it can create ambiguity and confusion about what is this we're actually trying to achieve here so you think about you know the hiring process at kings we, we both went through that uh, years ago and it's a very rigorous process and it's one that involves the board and you know serious conversations about one's adherence to the statement of faith and one's preparation for integrating faith in the classroom? And you know, all those questions are really important questions for maintaining the mission of the college over time, because it's a small faculty. And so you bring in three or four faculty that aren't really committed to the mission or capable of, of doing what the college understands its job to do in, in the realm of curriculum and, and teaching, that, that changes the character of the institution very, very quickly. And, and of course, then multiplies that potentially as, as that group hires more like themselves and, and on you go. So you, know, you think about um, expansion whether it's more students faculty staff right that each, each of these things are very critical from the standpoint of maintaining the mission over the course of time and of course there's many many stories of colleges or institutions that have lost their mission and and, and moved away from their mission maybe not even on purpose but just sort of
1: accidentally over time as
0: as they're less careful with hiring or expansion than
1: they ought to have been yeah, that's the lesson of a lot of the literature in this area, right? That, that famous book, Mission Drift, that if you don't know the mission, right, then if the people of the organization don't know the mission, then uh, that organization is going to change. And, and they also, Aristotle argues, they need to know one another. Citizens need to know uh, those common denominators, those common principles of why they're living together. But they also need to be able to look out and see one another and have a sense as to the character of the people that are around them they need to be participating in activities with one another because if you don't have the knowledge of the people who are around you then you won't know who to elect to office or who not to or you know whether or not you're deciding right a lawsuit between one party and, and another correctly so size uh, is is good as long as size doesn't overcome or supersede a knowledge of both mission and, and one another. So moving from a discussion of population to, to a question of territory, Aristotle writes in chapter five that everyone would agree in praising the territory, the land that you live upon, which is most entirely self-sufficing. And that must be the territory which is all producing, for to have all things and to want nothing is sufficiency. In size and extent, it should be such as may enable the inhabitants to live at once, temperately and liberally in the enjoyment of leisure. So you judge the territory of a state by the degree to which it produces sufficiency, and that sufficiency now allows the inhabitants to live both temperately and with leisure. And I think here, right, we spent a lot of our time applying these lessons to the development of the North American continent. One of the great highlights of American history was the fact that materially, everything that's bound up in the sentence that Aristotle just uses to apply to territory is, is something that's found in the United States. We have a territory that is self-sufficing. Uh, we have a territory that allows us um, to, to not want as long as we're willing to put in the work and make the right use of of what is in nature and turn it into uh, property.
0: There's a great passage in Federalist II from John Jay, where he describes the geography. And, and not only is he describing it in the terms of Aristotle, but also thinking about how it tends toward a unity, a, a single nation in the context of defending the union from those that might oppose the constitution and perhaps have a vision for multiple American Confederacy. So here's what he writes. It has often given me pleasure to observe that independent America was not composed of detached and distant territories, but that one connected, fertile, widespreading country was the portion of our Western Sons of Liberty. Providence has in particular manner blessed it with a variety of soils and productions and watered it with innumerable streams for the delight and accommodation of its inhabitants. A succession of navigable waters forms a kind of chain round its borders as if to bind it together while the most noble rivers in the world running at convenient distances present them with highways for the easy communication of friendly aids and the mutual transportation and exchange of their various commodities. Right. So you have the Mississippi, the Missouri, the Ohio. You've got obviously the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, all these waterways that are accessible. You'll get to that more with the next chapter or two in Aristotle. But but then you know the interior structure of the country. Now, of course, at this point, it's really the nation bounded by the Mississippi River, east of the Mississippi, that's the United States. You have the Louisiana Purchase expanding it further west, and then the Mexican Cession more or less completes the the continental U.S. with the acquisition of, of Texas on top of that. So more expansion to go, but even at this point, east of the Mississippi, you've got this, this single hole that's, that's well-constructed to provide prosperity, but also unity for the people. And, and Lincoln would emphasize that during the Civil War, now we're talking about the whole continental United States, but arguing that there really wasn't a good place to draw a line, north or south, east or west, that, that the borders would have to be artificial, and there really wouldn't be a good way to make this continent be two countries instead of one. And so all the more reason to, to, to try to bind up the nation in the context of that conflict and to preserve the unity that was so central to the
1: prosperity of the American people. Yeah, and it's a prosperity produced because it, it is it's, it's produced by people who are called upon to labor, so there's an opportunity, right, in the territory that if they put in the work, right, if they acculturate what is there within nature, um, if they if they mix culture and nature, uh, artifice and nature well, then they will be able to create a level of prosperity. And, and here, um, Aristotle as often talks in the language of the mean between two extremes, you, you could have a land, right, that, that didn't produce anything. And here, I think back to Tocqueville's conversation in Democracy in America, that Northern North America, that Canada, where it's very difficult to work the land, or Southern North America, um, you know, present day, Central America, where <clears throat> the land produces on its own. But that there's something unique uh, about the central part of the North American continent that fits perfectly within Aristotle's uh, definition, uh, on this front, on the prosperity front, but on other fronts as well. He'll go on to argue that the best state has a territory in which it's uh, difficult to access you know, by an enemy, but has that ease of egress to its inhabitants. I mean, that's a definition of the United States, as you just mentioned, the Mississippi, the waterways, but the Atlantic Ocean separates um, the early uh, American colonies uh, from, from Europe is well situated secondly in regard to both the sea and land yes it has an inland uh it has that fertility of the central part of north america but then we have that coastline uh, on both the east coast and and now uh, the west coast uh, and there is um, an opportunity there this comes along later with the building of roads and uh, trains and and waterways and all the rest um, for people to kind of move uh, about um, the country so it has all of the benefits of being a seafaring nation, and also all of the benefits of being kind of an agricultural, agrarian, land-based nation as well. Uh, so, chapter five, really, I mean, if he were going to use an example here, he was writing in the present day. He could come up with no better example than to, to write of of the present-day uh, United States. It's interesting that the founders appreciated that, you know, that they they saw that they they recognized
0: that they. Have been given special circumstances. And there were other things in the quality of the character of the American people, their history together, British heritage, there are other factors you could cite, but, but they were conscious of the fact that they had the kinds of circumstances that, that made this possible, right? that made, made success possible in a way that other places wouldn't necessarily. And so they were conscious of, of not messing that up. Think about the, the warnings of Washington regarding foreign entanglements. And, and the danger of, of drawing in essence, Europe closer to America. You got 3000 miles of ocean, let them do their thing over there. And, and while you develop and grow and in peace with all that distance away uh, between you, but, but if you entangle yourselves in their political affairs, in some sense, that distance shrinks. And so now all of a sudden, Just like had been very commonly the case during the colonial period, you're drawn into European wars. There's a North American theater for a European war. Avoid that to the degree you can and and maintain the the geographic advantages that you've been given, blessed with by God in in the
1: language of of John Jack. Yeah, that gets into the subject of uh, chapter six, whether it's good to have that access to others, whether in Aristotle's terms, quote, a communication with the sea is beneficial to a well-ordered state. And here, he might've had Athens as that example, You know, writing after the rise and decline of Athens. Now Athens is built upon this foreign exchange, these ideas that come in and out of Athens uh, that create uh, a certain vibe and, and excellence that you'd also see in present day American cities of Boston and New York City and Washington DC, Miami, New Orleans, San Francisco, Los Angeles. But then there's also that criticism that there may be ideas that come into ports, that, that come into states that produce disorder. So there's an argument that Aristotle identifies here against being a seafaring country. And while he acknowledges that there are dangers that come from foreign entanglement or foreign ideas that might produce disorder, he argues you know, by the end of this discussion that it's probably better Uh, to be connected uh, to the sea because that allowance for exchange of imports, of exports, uh, the fact that you can kind of shield yourself a little bit from those outside influences and that you can actually protect yourself better uh, if you have access to the sea, make the advantages of the the sea outweigh uh, any of um, uh, the problems that, that come along with being a seafaring people.
0: I think one way you see that with America is if you know, if, if the whole country were New York City and Boston, we'd have a problem. But where you have other parts of the country that are not as influenced by, by those exchanges and, and not as cosmopolitan in their orientation, then that provides a, a balance an, and a ballast there. And of course, with our federal system, maybe that emphasizes that even further. But, but the fact that you know, these these major port cities or, or cities that are influenced by that kind of cosmopolitan outlook are, are not the whole of what we have. And so there's, you know, uh, other voices that are influential in shaping the overall character and direction of the country.
1: That would be true also of the final discussion in chapter seven, seven um, of climate. You know, there you are in New York. What is it? 27 degrees and <laughs> it's 49 at the moment. 49. 49. Bad, and... Yeah in San Antonio, uh, warm. And, and here Aristotle gets into this interesting discussion of how climate influences the character of citizens within a state. This will be picked up uh, by Montesquieu later on uh, in uh, intellectual history and by Tocqueville, where he talks about the differences uh, between uh, climate and character. And he says, if you're living in a cold climate, and here he points out Europe uh, you may be full of spirit, but you're wanting in intelligence uh, and skill. So you may have comparative freedom relative to others, but you really don't have political organization and you're not capable of ruling over others. So he compares those living in Europe in a cold climate, right, who are free yet wanting in intelligence, with those who are the natives of Asia who are intelligent and inventive, but wanting in spirit. Uh, So they're always in a state of subjection and slavery, so we should not be surprised that where he lands here is the Hellenic race, (laughs) which is situated between them, is likewise intermediate in character. It's both high-spirited and also intelligent. So there's this this influence that climate has upon uh, the the nature of our activity, uh, and the, the mean, the, the mean between being intelligent and being courageous between being intelligent and being free is a mean that you ought to uh, try to land upon as a state.
0: And I think you know, and go back to John Jay because right after he describes the geography of the United States, the very next paragraph he talks about the people. He says, with equal pleasure, I have as often taken notice that Providence has been pleased to give this one connected country, to one united people. Uh, people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs, and who by their joint councils, arms and efforts, fighting side by side throughout a long and bloody war, have nobly established general liberty and independence. So there's kind of a spiritedness there, but also uh, whether it's you know kind of intelligence, that that points them to the institutions of free government. Of course, Publius wanted to contribute to that intelligence to make the case for a certain kind of free government that's embodied in the constitution. So there's a chance for the American people to have these two qualities as well that was pointing out as John Jay describes their character, their history, and, and their development together through the experience as British colonies and now into the years of independence
1: that followed. So the ideal is to have an intelligent people, uh, a people that is desirous of its freedom, but also a, a people whose passions are tempered. Uh, they are lovers of one another. They are lovers of their constitution. But um, their love is not a love in which you hate the other, uh, in which uh, you uh, are out of temper with the individual who is different than you. But here, Aristotle quotes they who love an excess also hate an excess. So there must be temperance that defines the quality of a of people as well. And it's gonna get into kind of a, the longer discussion that occurs at the end of book seven and into book eight. Well, how do you produce kind of love that is proper, that goes hand in hand with intelligence uh, and the desire for freedom?
0: Well, let's wrap up the show by turning to Tocqueville's crystal ball. Mm-hmm. So the NFL draft, Dave, uh, begins next Thursday with first round, of course, and then you have the Friday and Saturday continuations of that. So, since the show will be taped on Wednesday, but not come out until Saturday, in the normal course of events next week, we want to lock in some of our picks this week. Uh, and so, I make this easier for you, for us, by doing multiple choice. All right. So we'll talk about the number one overall pick. We'll talk about the landing place of the two leading quarterbacks, it seems like, in most draft boards. And then we'll talk about the Patriots, where they're going to go with their first-round selection at number 21. All right, so number one overall pick, right? Choice A, Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan, defensive end. Choice B, Trayvon Walker, defensive end from Georgia. Choice C, Ikem Ekwanu, offensive lineman from North Carolina State. Uh, C is trade down, and D is some kind of surprise. What do you think, Dave, for the Jacksonville Jaguars?
1: I think they trade. I think excuse me. I think they select Trayvon Walker. I think he's the individual right now that's just uh, has you know incredible you know physical upside, as they say, and on all these shows and uh, good motor. And got a good move. Oh, that's right. These are kind of funny expressions, but uh, yeah, I think that that that's a, and he's an edge rusher. Those are, those are hard to come by. And I think that uh, Trayvon Walker will be the first pick in the draft. All right. I'm going to stick with
0: Hutchinson. Who's I think been the consensus pick for a while, but now it seems like Walker, there's some buzz around that. That always seems to happen. You know, there's usually the pick you think it's going to be. And then a week or two out, there's always, wait a minute. What about this? I think that's smoke screen here. So I'm, I'm gonna stick with Hutchinson and same position, same need, right? Build that defensive line, get some you know potential to put pressure on the opposing quarterback. All right, quarterbacks, first quarterback, Kenny Pickett coming out of Pitt. Got five teams that seem most likely to draft a quarterback. So where does he go, Dave? We got Carolina Panthers, Atlanta Falcons, Seattle Seahawks, New Orleans Saints, and Pittsburgh Steelers.
1: I think he stays right in Pittsburgh so I think he'll play for the hometown Steelers.
0: Yeah, I am there as well. I think that that would be a great story. It's
1: it's very it's very
0: Pittsburgh. All right, second, Malik Willis. Same five teams, same order of the draft. Where does he land?
1: I think he goes to Seattle. I think uh, they've lost Russ Wilson. They need someone with good upside which that's that's all over his uh, draft previews. The quarterback with the most upside. So I, I think they take the chance on on Malik Willis and he goes to the Northwest and becomes uh, Russ Wilson's heir apparent.
0: I almost went with Seattle, uh, but I thought at some point, doesn't Pete Carroll have to think about the fact that he's 71 or whatever he is? Does he really want a three or four year project? Because it seems like Malik Willis is not going to be ready day one, uh, but maybe he's ready to do that. So I, I've got him one of the saints uh, that he makes it past The Seahawks, or maybe the Saints package their two picks to move up if they have to, because they have, I think, 16 and 19. So that's that's pretty good package. They could move up, you know, grab the Giants second pick or something like that if they feel like they have to move up. All right, lastly and most importantly, of course, Dave, I'm not gonna ask you for a name, number 21, kind of hard to to do that. But what position do the Patriots take? We got cornerback, wide receiver, inside linebacker, offensive tackle. Those seem to be the four consensus. Positions of greatest need, and of course they could trade down out of the first round as they have done a number of times. What, what do you think Bill Belichick is going to do?
1: Well, you don't have defensive tackle here as an option. So, of the ones you listed, I would go okay. probably offensive tackle. But I, I, wouldn't be surprised if if this huge guy Jordan Davis falls into twenty one. Uh, he's not an immediate need, uh, but he's, I mean, an incredible player who plays big and you put him in the center of the Patriots line with Christian Barmore. And I think that those two would be pretty incredible together. But uh, if he's not on my list, I'll probably go with offensive tackle, just planning for the future.
0: Okay. Now I'll give you a choice F. I'll let you go uh, defensive lineman. So I'll go defensive lineman then. All right. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. I I think they're likely to to go for offensive lineman later in the drafts, but they've had some success, you know, third, fourth, fifth round guys that, that they're able to develop um, usually it takes a year or two but it seems like they have pretty high level of confidence they can find somebody for the offensive line later in the draft. I'm going to say cornerback and it's one of those positions of course where Belichick has a great track record you know from his history as defensive coordinator and you know going way back that was really his area of expertise so they seem to have done well over the years drafting at that position so I think they're going to go there and solidify the secondary,
1: That'd be kind of interesting. I think that if if you're looking for storylines, if they were able to get Daryl Stingley Jr. from LSU, given that his grandfather, as you remember, was the wide receiver, right, who was made a quadriplegic, right, Jack Tatum in the 70s, that would be pretty neat to have the Stingley family kind of back in the Patriots' fold. That would be a a great story. And we'll we'll see
0: where we are in a couple weeks' time on those picks. In the meantime, thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, you can contact us at Democracy in America today at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you soon.